Good morning, Fellowship. It is great to be up here with you guys this morning. Um, as Eric said, my name is uh, Larry Kayser, and I am uh, one of the newer elders that just joined the elder board here in the last uh, several months. And I'm also um, the pastor of a trying to grow marriage ministry here at Fellowship that uh, I love and Ann and I really lead most of that together and so great that we get to uh, invest the best part of our life into something we believe in so deeply. And I have kind of a unique uh, privilege here this morning. You know, I led a church for a number of years in Michigan before we came here. And when I used to speak on Sundays, I always had a whole row full of uh, women right in front of me. I had my wife and my four daughters where I was like right in front of me. And uh, I loved that, and I'm not quite there. It's, it's, the whole thing has kind of morphed since then. So now I have my dear wife here, and I have three of my four daughters here. One came in from Michigan this weekend to do Tough Mudder yesterday. <laughs> and, uh, and then, of course, Eric is here, and other son-in-law, Tim, and we have one little grandson down here, Grant. So there are now, you know, what started off as six has now grown to 21. And um, so it's a special joy for me to be able to speak this morning and have uh, such a significant part of our family right here in the front row where they used to be. So I'm grateful for that. Um, so if you've got your Bibles, turn to Ecclesiastes 11, if you would, please. You know, Ecclesiastes, as you know, we've talked about this uh, quite a bit throughout the course of our time in Ecclesiastes, this is wisdom literature. And so this morning, uh, the wisdom is going to be, at least in part, around the idea that you and I crave certainty. Like we just do. We crave things that are certain. You know, a couple of weeks ago, Ann and I went away for our 39th wedding anniversary for the long weekend. And while we were, we were in, the, in the hills in northern Georgia, and so we were getting ready to go to a botanical garden and we we're going to go to a concert there and have a nice dinner. And so we got in the car and off we went. And we, of course, we turned on our trusty GPS to get us there. And we probably got about three or four miles into the trip. And guess what happened? The God of the GPS left us. <laughs> so you're out there in these little winding roads, two lane roads back in the hills of Georgia. You don't know what's northwest, east or south, right? And so you come to the first stop sign and you've got an option, you've got three options in front of you and you have absolutely no idea which one to take. Now I don't know about you, but that causes uncertainty in me. And so my joyful journey of our evening going to this botanical garden and this concert quickly turned into a uh, pretty instantaneously irritability. Because one of the things I really didn't want to do was get lost in the two-lane mountain roads of northern Georgia. I did not want to do that. So I'm telling you, it's amazing to me how quickly our sense of adventure can turn when something uncertain invades our space or invades our mind because we crave certainty. You know, in the last decade or so, neuroscience has done a lot of work about understanding the way our brains work. And one of the things that is true about the way our brains work is that we are absolutely hardwired in our brains to hate uncertainty. Like we hate it. And so when it happens, our brain kicks into another gear. 
And it begins to, to create hormones and begin to shoot those down through our brain and into our body because uncertainty has come and we don't feel good and we're gonna do, our brain is gonna try to get us to do whatever we can control, whatever we can fix, whatever kind of adrenaline we need to get past this. But our brain is gonna work really hard at battling uncertainty. And you know, we feel it in our whole bodies, right? I mean, sometimes you feel it because you get a stiff neck. Sometimes you start getting a headache. Some people will feel shortness of breath or they'll feel their heart rate go up, but they start sweating. But this stuff happens to us when uncertainty becomes a part of our experience because God designed us to hate uncertainty. So the writer of Ecclesiastes has something to say about our battle with uh, uncertainty in chapter 11 here. So there's two parts to this chapter. The first six verses really are gonna tell us pretty profoundly about some things we don't know. And then the last three, seven through 10, they're gonna tell us some things that we can know, that we do know. So look with me, will you, at 11.1, and these are kind of, these are proverbial statements that help illustrate what he's trying to say to us. So it says, cast your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. Divide your portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. I want you to take a look, actually at the first six verses there. There's a four letter phrase that's repeated four times in the first six verses. You see what it is? I just read it in that one and it's repeated three other times. Come on, give me, what, what I heard it. You do not know. So four times in these six verses, Solomon's gonna tell us, we don't know. <clears throat> so in, with that in mind, take a look at this, cast your bread on the surface of the water. The Hebrew might be translated to send. So to send your bread on the water. Bread is talked about really in the sense of our livelihood. It's probably an allusion to business and to commerce because we, you know, we're pretty sure Solomon was the author of the book. So what do we know about Solomon? Well, one of the things we know is that in 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 26, we discover that Solomon has a fleet of ships. And in chapter 10 in 1 Kings, we discover that he not only has a fleet of ships, but he sends them out. So 1 Kings 10.22 says, we, it says, for the king had ships of Tarshish at sea with Hiram's fleet, and, every once, and once every three years, the ships of Tarshish would arrive bearing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. But interesting to be on that boat, huh? So... What Solomon's talking about here is he's sending his own resources. He's casting his bread on the water. And here's the reality. They don't come back for three years. So think about that. So he sends these boats out. Must take about a year and a half for them to get wherever they're going and then a year and a half to get back. So he sends his resources out across the world with three years of radio silence. He has absolutely no idea what may have happened, might happen, or has happened. As a matter of fact, he goes on and he says, I think that's a part of it. He says, divide your portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. So even his realization that these ships may have navigation problems, may have weather problems, may have disease problems, 
and they may not ever make it back. He says, you know, multiply this thing, diversify, send out seven or eight of them. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. He's really telling us that. So, and I got thinking about that. In the day and age in which we live, when if we need something, we need to send for something or send something away for us, most of us, right? It's a couple of clicks in two days and it's wherever it needs to be or gets to wherever it's going. And can you imagine that sending out your goods, your men, your wealth, your ships with absolutely no clue and not a word for three years? So the writer of Ecclesiastes is giving us an illustration of something here. He's giving us uh, a little nudge about uncertainty and faith. I mean, there's some degree of faith, right, that it would take to send out your fleet without a clue as to whether they'll actually be able to return or not. You have no idea what's going to happen. So he goes on to say here in verse 3, if the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth. And whether a tree falls toward the south or toward the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. There's wisdom, huh? Wherever it falls, it's not moving. It's just there. He who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. So what is he saying to us? Well, God has so ordered the world that things happen. They happen, period. Full clouds will give you rain. Falling trees will be where they land, and people who spend their time watching the weather will not produce anything of value. It's really what Solomon's telling us here. So wisdom is dealing with the downpour and the fallen tree as it is. Is it raining? Because it's, it's raining because it's raining. Why did the tree fall where it did? Because it fell. So one of the ways I think Solomon's trying to get us to stop and think about here, one of the, one of the, where, the places where I think we get ourselves in the most trouble as we try to follow Christ through life is we get tripped over why questions a lot, don't we? Why did this happen? Why did that tree fall? Why did it rain today? Why is that happening? And we get tripped up all the time over the why questions. And what I think Solomon's trying to nudge us to do is to consider the need that every one of us has to embrace our reality, to see where we are right now, whatever's happened, and to embrace it, to walk in it, to accept it. You know, for some of us, that is a really hard thing to do. You know, sometimes we get in a, a relationship, say with our marriage is struggling, but we really refuse to face it. And we sort of learn to live these two independent lives without ever embracing the reality of the pain we're living in. And so nothing ever gets better, it only gets worse. Or maybe we've got some real struggle with money and we just haven't had, we just kind of refuse to look at it. You know, when we look at the credit card statement, we only look at the minimum amount due. 
Or maybe some of us are in a job where we've got a conflict with a boss that just continues to erode and to erode and we don't move. And here's the truth, that until we embrace our reality, until we say, wow, that is what is true, first of all, it will not harm you to embrace it. And second of all, nothing can change until we do. And I think Solomon's trying to nudge us in that direction. Our faith carries within it the mystery of God's providence, but it doesn't abolish it. So we are left oftentimes uncomfortable, uncertain about our feelings or our circumstances in life. So verse five goes on to say, just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the, activ- in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. Do not know the activity of God. We're hardwired to battle uncertainty. Verse six says, sow your seed in the morning and do not be idle in the evening for you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed or whether both of them will alike, they'll be good, it'll be good. So what's he trying to say to us? What, we, what, do, what do we not know and what do we know about God's works? He's, we don't know about God's activity. We don't know how God is working. You don't know if there's going to be misfortune. You don't know if there's going to be success. But here's the truth, that God is in the misfortune and the fortune. God is in the pain and he's in the success. He's in all of those places. And that's what Solomon's trying to help remind us of that truth. You know, seed in the hand of a farmer was his life. It was his livelihood. When he had it in his hands, two things could always diminish his return pretty easily. If you threw it in the wind, the wind is gonna take it and blow a bunch of it in a place where it cannot germinate and can't reproduce or create any return. Or if you sowed the seed after a big rainstorm, or right before a big rainstorm, and the rain just comes and washes the seed away, and so there is no return on your investment. So in verse four, we see the farmer grabbing his bag of seed, and he spends the whole day doing what? He spends the whole day looking at the sky. Why? He can't control the weather. He can't. But he can't control what he does. But he stands and he looks. And for him, there is no possibility of return for his labor. You know, when I think about sowing and reaping, it's hard for me not to think about that as a principle in the scriptures in much broader ways. You know, God has designed a sowing and reaping rhythm into the lives of humanity. One of the ways it's so easy to see is when you raise children, you're sowing into children. You are. And you pray that there's a day coming when there's a season of harvest where you're reaping some of the joy from what you've sown. But we, we sow and reap in relationships. We sow and reap in businesses. We sow and reap all over our lives in exercise and physical disciplines and what we eat. There's a sowing and reaping reality that God has woven into the rhythms of our life. You know, Galatians 6, 7 says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever we sow, we will also reap. I had a chance when I was still back in Michigan 
and I was in between working in the church. I was working at a design company for about six months, and I had the opportunity to work really closely with a guy whose name was Giovanni Shin. And he, he was an absolute avowed atheist. And he was kind, and so we engaged around spiritual things almost on a daily basis. I bet I had a chance to talk with him about the gospel 20 or 30 times. And to my knowledge, I never saw him do anything but sort of nod his head in a kind sort of way and ignore me. And so after about six months, he moved and got a job in the Silicon Valley out near San Francisco, and I never heard from him again. Didn't know where, even what company, he, I didn't know anything about it. And about a year ago, I got an email from him. He somehow got online and he found me and he sent me an email and he said, I just want you to know that all those conversations that we had way back at uh, Twistthink, the place we worked together, he said, that started me on a journey that's lasted the last 12 years. And he said, I just recently have become a Christian, become a follower of Christ. And he said, I just want you to know that the conversations we had started an entire process for me. And I thought to myself, wow, it was unbelievable privilege that I would actually get to hear that. But what I, when I'm sitting here this week and I'm looking at this text and I'm looking at the idea of sowing and reaping, I thought, man, that is a picture. You know, we do not understand or see the activity of God. I certainly didn't see it. But one day, there was a harvest. There, there, was some, there was a return on the labor. And that's the kind of work that God is doing. We don't know. We don't know. And so God keeps inviting us into this uncertainty, into this mystery with him. He keeps encouraging us, moving us towards faith, towards belief. So wisdom means refusing to let what I don't know Keep me from doing what I can. Wisdom means refusing to let what I don't know keep me from doing what I can do. Man, that's good wisdom. That's just good wisdom. We don't sit paralyzed. You know, the Holy Spirit is our teacher. And what's, you know, I want what is the Spirit of God teaching? Even as you sit here right now, when you think about the need to embrace your reality. Do you think about the place, is there a place where you've been standing and just looking at the clouds? A place where you're stuck? Is there a relationship that's broken that you just won't, like, it's not my problem? Or, or your finances are stuck and you just, like, I can't, I can't look. What's the Holy Spirit saying to you this morning? Because he wants you to step back and go, this is, this is my reality. Can I trust God to walk in to this uncertainty? Because the uncertainty scares me to death. The uncertainty brings pain into the whole realm of our life. And here's the thing. In order to do something about it, whether you did it today or tomorrow, in order to do something about it, it will require something that has been necessary all along. It's an act of faith. It's a step of faith. It's a going to God and saying, Lord, I, I've been afraid of this for years or months or weeks. I haven't been able to step into this. God, if you don't come, if you don't give me the faith, I can't move. You've got to help. God's waiting for that prayer from us. 
because he's pulling, he's calling us into this place of faith. So Solomon definitely wanted us to understand there's some important things that we don't know. But then in the second half of this passage, he tells us a few things that we actually can know and we can know how God is working and we can understand it a little bit better and it's a gift to us. So as we go on in verse seven, it says the light is pleasant and it is good for the eyes to see the sun. Indeed, if a man should live many years, let him rejoice in them all and let them remember the days, let him remember the days of darkness for they will be many. Everything that is to come will be futility. You know, light in the Bible is used to convey joy. It's used to convey blessing, comfort, warmth, all of those things. But it's also, when light and darkness are used together, it's very clearly a metaphor for life and death. And that's what we're seeing here, that the, the darkness is symbolizing death. So if you're alive, look what this past says, passage says. The light is pleasant, it's good for the eyes to see the sun. If a man should live many years, let him rejoice in them all. This is an invitation from God to rejoice in the life he's given to us. Man, is it easy not to do that because lots of us are steeped in uncertainty. We're uncertain about our future, about our job, about our kids, about our health. We're uncertain about you know, the financial crisis that might be a year away. We're uncertain about our politics. We're uncertain about all kinds of things. And that uncertainty, our brain is hardwired to try to do something about it. And so it's hard to rejoice in the life that we've been given. Just the fact that we have a life to find joy in our existence. And then he talks about, you know, the darkness here. Let him remember the days of darkness because there's gonna be many. And remember when we've talked about progressive revelation, each time we, you know, as we've gone through this book is a reminder to us about what Solomon knew. And so his understanding at this point of death is there's gonna be a soul, kind of an eternal soul sleep. And so for him, thinking about the, the days of darkness, there's gonna be a lot more of those than the days of light. And so he realizes that. And so his plea is rejoice in the life you've been given. I read a report here, a study from a psychologist named William Moulton. And he asked 3,000 people what have you to live for? His words, the answer shocked him. I don't know where the 3,000 people came from, but the answer shocked him. He found that 94% of the people were not living at all. They were simply enduring the present while waiting for something to happen in the future. They were waiting for something to change, waiting for children to grow up and leave home, waiting for the next year when things would be better or at least different, waiting for the chance to take a trip, waiting for a check to come in the mail, waiting for tomorrow, waiting, waiting. So for them, life had deteriorated to a cycle with little meaning in and of itself. I'm, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. Solomon's trying to nudge us somewhere here to a different place. In verse nine, it says, rejoice, young man, 
During your childhood, let your heart be pleasant during the days of your young manhood and follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes, yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. That's kind of a nice downer at the end of that big excitement, huh? (laughs) I was thinking if you're a parent of a teenager and you read that, Rejoice, young man, young woman in your childhood. Let your heart be pleasant. Follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Wait a minute. <laughs> it's like, what does that mean? <laughs> but the end, of that, the end of that passage right there is just a reminder. It's a reminder that under the sun, under life in God, that there is a greater joy in our life than just sowing our oats. That there's this greater reality of being called into a relationship with a living God. And so he reminds us that even as we rejoice, even as we pursue our heart's desires, he's reminding us that we have a God, as the New Testament tells us, who, lo- who disciplines those whom he loves, who encounters our life so that we don't, the, the goal isn't to harm ourselves or to harm God's reputation or God's spirit in the process of our pursuing our days of of, uh, joy. But this is a real invitation. This is a real invitation to joy. This is a real invitation to go for it in life. This is a real invitation to even check with God. You know, one of the beautiful things as we delight in God, right? He gives us the desires of our heart. And just so you know, the way I've always understood that to mean that as I rejoice in God, my desires come from him. And that's one of the beautiful things here is that we have this invitation, men, women, rejoice, go for it, pursue life. So there's one other piece about this just accounting in here is that, you know, when we hear a word like that, judgment or accounting on these things, you know, that automatically sounds negative to us. Um, thankfully, in Christ, I don't think it's something we need to fear. But let me look at it just a little bit different way, too. We're also going to be accountable to God for the good gifts he's given to us. We're accountable to God, according to this text, for our joy, for our willingness to go for it, to, to, to follow the desires of our heart, to step out in faith and to live. You know, when I think about the parable of the talents in the New Testament, that's what that writer was trying to tell us, that there's an accountability for what God has given to us for our joy. What have we done with the things God has put in our hands, in our life? It's, a be- it's Really, it's a beautiful picture because God is saying, man, I, I want to give you freedom. I want you to open your life. I want you want you to go for this. So he goes on in verse 10. He says, so remove grief and anger from your heart and put away pain from your body because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. Honestly, we could have done the entire message on this verse. Seriously. So remove grief and anger from your heart and put away pain from your body. To say quickly what he's saying here to the point, deal with your junk while you're young because the older you get, the more difficult it becomes and the more it will cost you. 
here's what I know to be true. When we allow roots of bitterness, when we allow unforgiveness, when we allow pride, when we allow things, um, you know, unreconciled uh, relationships with past people we work with or family members, when we allow that stuff to get a deep root into us, here's what I know is true. Deep roots like that don't come all the way out on the first pole. They just don't. I'm not a farmer, but I know it's true. Because I know it's true in me and I know it's true in people I've sat with for a good deal of my life. You know, this is a, this is a really important piece of this passage. Because I think much of the uncertainty that we experience in life has to do with the brokenness in us that we won't acknowledge. So if we've got unforgiveness or bitterness in us and that, that's impacting the way you relate with your spouse or your roommate or your boss at work or your father or a grown child or, or whatever it might be, you know, when that's present, there's uncertainty in the relationship all the time. There's always fear about entering into it. There's always fear about what's going to happen when we all get together at Christmas. There's fear because we haven't dealt with these things. And so the uncertainty lives in here. And then what happens when uncertainty enters our brain is our body begins to work it out with our hormones and creates ways in which we want to deal with the uncertainty, which for many of us, is to run away from it. Run away from the person. Step out of the situation. Because it causes too much uncertainty. And I just, uh, I, this passage right here is so significant for all of us. Solomon is really trying to lay something out for us to understand about how much these things impact the way that we live with uncertainty. And the truth is that because those things impact all of our relationships and the sphere in which we live, that uncertainty robs your joy. It takes our joy away. God wants to call us to something that's a lot more exciting, that's a lot bigger. He wants to take our uncertainty and invite us to something grander. He wants to take us to those places where we've been paralyzed by fear, where we've been paralyzed by uncertainty, and he wants to invite us to a life of faith. You know, I know this, that even very back at the beginning at the creation of man in the garden, when Adam and Eve enjoyed perfect fellowship with God, perfect fellowship with each other, perfect fellowship with the creation, they still lived with the power of uncertainty. Do you remember that even though all those things were perfect, God put a restriction on them, didn't he? He said they couldn't eat of one tree in that garden. And it was the tree, what? Of the knowledge of good and evil. So even Adam and Eve lived in perfect fellowship with all that God had created was living with uncertainty because God hardwired us this way because it was his intention to use that to pull us to faith, 
to teach us to give up control to the one who controls all, to give up our fear to the one who gives us perfect love. God has invited us to a relationship rooted in faith, rooted in trust with a life that's beyond our control. Faith is life and life is faith and faith is the fuel for our future. It really is. So this really is the spiritual wisdom in this passage, in this text. It's our opportunity to trust God because God knows what we need to understand. It's, it's, it's the opportunity to trust a God who made everything, who rules all things, who can control all things. You will experience God not just when you know about God, but when you learn to trust God. When we trust God, that's when we get to know God. He pulls us out of uncertainty one little step at a time until the next one comes. But when the next one comes, you learn something from the one before. And he slowly pulls us to this life of faith that he's asking us to join him in, to experience him. Believe me, when I say this, I mean, I'm speaking these words out loud, but I, uh, there's a ton of places in my own life where I have to step around and say, you know, teacher, listen to your own words. Like if this was easy, we would all be doing it great, right? But... It is a real and genuine invitation by the way God designed us that the abundant life is not about the absence of uncertainty. It's not about having all the answers or having all the control or all the ways we try to derive security in our lives. It is about a life of faith. So why choose to rejoice even in uncertainty? Because we're invited to faith. Hebrews chapter six says it's impossible to please God without faith. So God is inviting us to a life of faith. So there's one other motivation here at the end of verse 10. It says, because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. We don't have long. Our youth is fleeting. Trust him now. Trust him now. So the application of this text is not tomorrow. It's now. You know, so many times we come to church and we hear great teaching here every week. Every week we hear great teaching. And then we go out to the parking lot and go have lunch. And, and I do it too. Like, we're, that's what we do. But this morning, I want to, you know, this text, Solomon's trying to say to us, the application, this is not tomorrow, it's today. It's now. It's the Spirit of God finding that place in your life where uncertainty has caused a breach in a relationship or caused you to step away from God, or paralyzed you in fear, or keeps you looking at the clouds. Trust him now, because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. And I've told my girls who are moms this many times, and you guys probably heard this a bunch of times too, but I tell them all the time that when you're raising kids, you know, the days are really long sometimes, but the years are short. And after you've parented for a while, you all know that that's true. That's true in our experience. And that's what Solomon is trying to say to us. Trust him now. Youth is fleeting today. So I'm going to close our time here by getting us watch a little video. And uh, I'm going to let Trace Adkins tell us one more truth about what Solomon was trying to say this morning. So let's watch this video. 
You're going to miss this. Yeah, that sound right there. Someday you won't hear that. You're going to miss this. You know, I've been, uh, uh, a while ago, actually, I read a book on uh, caring for people as they were dying. And out of that book, I, I, uh, this was a man who wrote it who sat with, I think, a thousand people or more on their deathbed. And so he uh, gave five things that he's heard over and over and over again from somebody as they were on their deathbed. And the first one was this. People would adjust their priorities. They would prioritize things that mattered, not the stuff in their house, not their cars, not their bank accounts. They really, they would, not that those things don't, they're not important, but it's not what anybody's prioritizing on their deathbed. To make time for loved ones, to like really make time for them. A seriously ill patient, he said, they never know that worries about, he's never known a seriously ill patient who worried about current items populating their calendar. Number three, have meaningful conversations. You know, some of us will go through our whole lives and never say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And somebody will never say, yeah, I, I do forgive you. Or somebody else doesn't say, you know, I really love you. Because, oh, they, they already know it. And so they said, I, I would go speak these words and have conversations like this. I would enjoy life more. I'd rejoice. I'd rejoice in my youth. I would rejoice. And number five, he wished they would not have been afraid to take more risk. And I, you know, I think Solomon's telling us all those things. He's telling us all of those things. So I want to encourage you this morning, if there's a place of uncertainty that has you stuck or paralyzed, listen to the Spirit of God. Make it now, today. And if any of those last things, you know, to rejoice, to rejoice in the gift we've been given. Would you stand up and pray? We'll pray. Father, thank you for these uh, men and women here this morning. And thank you for Solomon, Lord. And I, I marvel at re reading a book from so many thousands of years ago can speak so profoundly, powerfully, to life in Middle Tennessee in the 21st century. Because Lord, you hardwired us a certain way since creation that would pull us towards faith in you. So God, I pray that you would give all of us the courage this morning to do whatever it is you're asking of us now. Now. So Lord, give us your courage, give us faith, give us words, fight our fears. In the name of Jesus, amen.